0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Unless it's the morning, then that as well. Welcome to the latest episode of The Abbey Khan Show. I hope you are all staying incredibly safe and well and your families are all safe during this insane time that we are going through as a world and as a human race. I'm going to hopefully help you guys stay entertained and improve your knowledge and education by introducing today's guest. This is going to be a very brief background because it is extremely Extensive, And you can go and check out the show notes below and obviously the website of my guest, who is none other than Hugh Gilmore. Hugh is a sports psychologist by career choice. He has worked with all Ireland winners, world champions, Olympians with experience delivering to sports and performance psychology to the British weightlifting team and Paralympic powerlifting team for the Rio Games. He's worked with Weightlifting Ireland, Northern Ireland Netball, British Athletics. The list just continues to go on and on and on. And Hugh currently works in Loughborough uh, with the English Institute of Sport and also sits on the board of directors for Netball Northern Ireland as performance director. Hugh's... Accolades don't do him any justice. He is also just such an incredible, incredible human being. So, you guys are going to really, really enjoy this podcast. If you are into psychology and especially sports psychology and how to optimize, performance through your mindset which is what we talk about a lot today but Hugh's also got a podcast called 80 percent mental which will be linked in the show notes below as well that you should definitely go and check out there's some incredible guests on there and he delivers an incredible wealth of knowledge so without further ado please enjoy my conversation with Hugh Gilmore you're listening to the Abby Khan show a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible my name's Abby Khan, I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, find out how they optimise their lives for success, and how you can do the same. Hugh Gilmore, all the way from sunny England, how are you, mate?
1: Not too bad, Abby. how are you, keeping?
0: Yeah, really well, really well, mate. Mate, just for the people that may not know who you are and what you do, can you just give us a little bit of background? On you
1: and your story? Um, so, in terms of me and my role, uh, I'm a sport and exercise psychologist. Uh, and I've been working specifically with an area of performance psychology with Olympic and Paralympic athletes, specifically um, weightlifters and athletics at the moment. Um, and then, my story and where I came from, well, actually I actually was a coach at 16. It uh, was the first sort of endeavor into anything um, whenever I started coaching uh, at my local GAA club which is Gaelic Athletic Association uh, in the sport of hurling and then later on I found out that weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting made somebody like me a bit faster who I was very slow so uh, I got into Olympic weightlifting and from there you know masters in sports psychology etc Um, done a lot of coach development work and Uh, coach education stuff, and even at one point sat on the board of directors for Netball Northern Ireland. So my experience stems right through from coaching under eights to working with Olympic athletes in in two different sports. And even though I sat on the board of directors for Netball Northern Ireland, I I have only wore a skirt once, but I don't want to talk about that.
0: (laughs) That's more of a weekend thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm interested why why psychology of all things that you could have sort of got, in, got into you know most people going into sports especially in early age want to go more into that the actual sort of you know the strength and conditioning side of things program design all that sort of fun stuff why the psychology from a mindset perspective what was what interested you about that?
1: So I always had a fascination with psychology and, and was really interested in it. Um, I think it was because. When you understand psychology at A-level, you see little bits of it being applied in uh, the real world, and you think, oh, that could be better. But at university, uh, one of my lecturers set a task where they got three people out of the audience to do sit-ups, and I was one of the people. And she handed me an envelope. She handed the two other lads an envelope, and She had given me the instructions of do 30 sit-ups. She gave somebody else the instructions of do 60 sit-ups. And she gave somebody else the instructions of do your best. And then she said, right, you've got 60 seconds down this gap. And she timed us. And I stopped at the 30 uh, sit-ups. And and then I did a few more because I realized the other guys were going on. And I thought, like, it was just the first to get to, to 30. And actually, they you know busted themselves for the full sixty seconds, whereas I stopped at the thirty seconds. And uh, this was in a, in a sports science undergrad, and uh, it just made me realize, that you know, because of the instructions, my approach to that task had been completely different. Uh, whereas the other guys, you know, they went for the their number or they went for their ego goal of of do the best. Uh, and what we know is that people who are set challenging, but high and achievable goals will outperform those who are set lower goals or outperform those who are set do your best goals. And I suppose when you think about it, like in marathon running, the thing that amazes me as well out of that is everyone says that around mile 23, 24, people hit the wall and they've no more glycogen and it's really tough. But like if these marathon runners hit the wall at... uh, at that mile, why is it they're sprinting across the finish line? Why is their top speed at the finish line? You know, it's it's not because they're physically exhausted. It's because the finish line is a clear. I know where I have to be. I can put maximum effort in. It's unambiguous. You know exactly where you need to get to, and you can put your full resources in it. And that just demonstrates the power of goal setting. That physiologists will talk about. You know, you're not at the line, or you're you've hit the wall, but yet people who've hit the wall sprint across the finish line. You know, it doesn't make sense. So to me, understanding the power of the mind is really, you know, it's clear cut as to how it helps performance. But I think what I've learned over the past few years is there's a lot of skill in being able to do that with somebody.
0: So it's interesting that I think when they say, you know, you hit the wall at hit the mile 23, 24, and then now, I mean, now we've got 100 kilometre, uh, sort of runners and ultra marathons, you know, like, well, if glycogen is depleted at a 23, 24, how are these guys able to keep continue going? I know they're gonna see and and things, but it's still quite yeah. insane to say they can run or even a 24 hour run. Like how are they able to actually do that?
1: Yeah. Again, more more examples of people breaking breaking things because of the power of the mind. And I mean, if you look at Roger Bannister, uh, who broke the four minute mile, you know, lots of people didn't think that was possible, but as soon as he did it, loads of other people broke it. And you know, athletics is littered with examples of that. Of when somebody sets a new world record that goes across some mental barrier of an arbitrary number, like four minutes. Next thing you know, everyone else thinks it possible, and and lots of other people then not well, not lots, but other competitors then can reach that level. So it just goes to show, again, the power of the mind. But I'm sure you've got crossfitters, powerlifters, weightlifters all listening who've gone for a 60-kilo snatch and, uh, you know, they're struggling. They could probably hit 59 all day long but struggle at 60. Or similarly, you know, whether it be a 100-kilo squat, 99 is okay, but they can't get 100. Like, why why is that? It's because of what – what they have in their mind about that um and one of my experiences from weightlifting again is you know coaches sneakily putting on extra half kilo and kilo weights in among the other bumpers to get people a pb and they were always capable of it it's just they didn't have it in their head that uh you know belief that they could do it because of the challenge they perceived
0: yeah, there's um, there's a few studies I read a, a long time ago now where they were they were um, testing people's one RM in the in the back squat and they would do it blindfolded and they wouldn't tell them the weight that was on there and every single subject in that in that test um, hit a new PB every one of them.
1: Yeah, you know it's funny you say that. Um, Bryce Lewis, um, who is a power lifter, you might be aware of, uh, got a lot of. Abuse um, on social media for putting what Americans call trash can bags or garbage bags um, over the weights, so he couldn't see them. Um, and it was it was from a presentation that I had did that he was at that we had discussed this tactic, um, which was it essentially allows you to focus on what you do in the lift and not actually focus on what the weight is and therefore you have to bring in your best game regardless of what is on the bar um but again he got ridiculed for that on social media because it looked looked a bit silly um and the people taking the piss out of him yeah actually it, you know it's common practice from a psychology perspective in weightlifting of like trying to take away the knowledge of what you're lifting and focus on what it is you're actually bringing to the bar to lift it
0: yeah, it's interesting that how we look at other methods that are quite unconventional and judge. Whereas from his perspective, from Bryce, he'd be like, "I don't give a shit. Like, I just hit an extra twenty kilos on my deadlift or whatever it was." Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when people are in that mindset, you know, whether they're going through like a pretty grueling CrossFit style workout or they're going for a new PB, and like you know, there there might be a hit fifty nine kilo snatch, but the sixty just seems impossible. How do how do people break that mindset? How do they change that thought process in order to go, okay, I can actually do this? Or is it a case of slipping in a couple of weights from a coaching perspective and not telling the athlete? Or if you are the athlete, how are you changing that thought process to knowing that you can do that?
1: Okay, so that's really interesting because when I think about how to change somebody's behavior, I can change the situation I can change their skill level, the behavioural skill level. I can change their cognition or their thought, or I can change their philosophy. Um, and what what that means is like the situation is okay. If you can't snatch sixty, you're going to snatch fifty nine, and it's not going to be a problem. And we're going to work at 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 that level of fifty nine, um, up until the point where. We don't ever do 60. We go straight up to 61, you know? So you become that familiar in that routine with that. Um, Or similarly, you use other movements to get by that block. So, you know, if you progress somebody's, uh, say, snatch from the hip, um, so hang snatch from from the hip position, it's going to work on getting them under. Um, And you increase the proficiency with that. And you also increase the proficiency in a power snatch as well, Um, and you also increase the proficiency in uh, snatch balance triples, chances are you're going to get them well beyond uh, that one kilo uh, jump that they're trying to make on a normal snatch. So you can use, again, they change the situation instead of tackling it mentally. You just build their resources around that until that's no longer a mental barrier. So that's the bottom level of change. The difficulty is, though, you can't do that for a competition. You know they have if they're trying to go for the number, they have to get the number. So sometimes the situation can't be changed. An alternative view of this is like if you look at professional footballers, um, or maybe in the AFL, for example, because I assume you've got a lot of Australian listeners. Uh, the top players are going to have like a, a entourage with them and people around them, a lot of yes men who protect them. And they don't, you know, they've got a bubble. So they don't ever have to be in awkward situations of having to maybe uh, be challenged robustly by people. Um, This is typical within the NFL that players don't develop social skills or they don't develop interactional people skills or, or finance and management skills because they're never in the situation where they have to do that. So you can do that in a big sport where there's lots of money. Uh, you pay people to solve your problem or in the case of the 59 kilogram snatch you're paying the coach to come up with a program so you don't have to face that difficulty so that's a behavioral level of change the next level up is that sorry that's a situational level of change you change the situation to achieve the behavioral level next level up is going to be where you maybe try and uh, educate the athlete on a pre-performance routine because uh, that will be beneficial in, in this scenario And the pre-performance routine is essentially, how do you use imagery? How do you uh, self-regulate your emotions and your breathing, your heart rate, etc., prior to the lift? So in that, uh, say, 90 seconds before you lift the bar, what are you doing to get yourself ready? Are you busy having an argument on Facebook with some of your haters, or are you busy uh, on Tinder, swiping left and swiping right? Like, are you actually focused on what you're about to do with the bar? Uh, I assume Tinder's in Australia as well and everywhere else in the world. But the the point being that your preparation mentally and physically contributes to your performance. So that would be a behavioral skill. You could also say that uh, one of the interesting things about coaches, coaches giving uh, cues, coaching cues, There's a difference between an internal and an external cue. An internal cue is something like fire your glutes. God damn it. Like, how many times is that said within uh, the coaching community? Like, that's it's it's a phenomenally useless cue Um, because people's glutes are always firing. If they weren't firing, they wouldn't be able to sit in a chair or stand up. Um, You know, that's an internal cue. Um, But what we know is that people actually organize the body better in terms of skill execution. And they also uh, create a greater force development whenever they, are sorry, a greater rate of force development um, whenever they get an external cue, which would be drive the feet through the floor or uh, throw the bar above your head. Those are external cues because they're not to do with the insides of the body. And external cues produce... Better skill and better force development. Um, so again, the coach could do that, and that's a behavioural approach to changing the, the the performance of the athlete. So we move up another level. So we've done situational change. We've done a behavioural type change. Now, just because we teach them a new behaviour doesn't mean it's always going to work. The next level up is the cognitive stage of like what are they thinking about. So again, you would ask the athlete like what are they thinking about the, this. Chances are, most people are f- af- afraid of uh, afraid of you know either some sort of injury or some sort of an embarrassment or both. Um, and from that point of view, then you know I've, I've worked with lifters who have had serious dislocations uh, of the elbow or, or, or shoulder, and they've been afraid. And these are people who've competed at Commonwealth level. Um, they've been afraid to then snatch again. And what we did was we we changed their cognition or how they think about the problem by getting them to do uh, snatch balance, or sorry, snatch uh, bailouts from behind with a brush shaft. And then every session, you're just adding a couple of kilos and you start every session by doing fifteen two sets of 15 bailouts with uh, a brush shaft, working up to the point where you're doing that with 40 kilograms. You know, or or fifty kilogram, This was a seventy kilogram female snatcher um, at the time. So, the the issue changes because they then perceive the thoughts of, "Oh, this isn't going to hurt me because I have the ability to uh, not get hurt by bailing out." So you build confidence in the skill, and I think the big thing for me is that where you can. You know, I'm not here to miss whisper magic words into somebody's ears and tell them it's going to be all right and they're a lovely, wonderful person and their mother loves them. I'm going to try and actually provide a source of really hard fact of, look, you can bail out of a 40 kilogram bar at the bottom of a snatch position for uh, 15 reps by two sets at the start of every training session. Do you think you can do that with your max? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they've built confidence that's a physical, hard confidence that they can touch. We're not blowing smoke up in anybody's buttholes. Um, so that is, the, that is the, like a cognitive way where you're changing. You're actually providing a hard, fast way of changing the way they're thinking about the threat. Um, the next, you know, the other way you could do that is just to praise like, you know, what's the likelihood of them getting injured? uh what you know what is the uh likelihood of you know try and challenge that from a, a thought point of view where it's you're expressing that they're you know they're not going to get injured because they have the power to lose it forward maybe um something like that you know you, you would challenge it from it depends on what they're actually afraid of like if it's a basic embarrassment of missing in front of people or like if you know if you're snatching and this somebody you fancy in the gym, um, you know, maybe then it's a case of like, what if, what if actually she likes people who miss their snatches and try again, as opposed to people who get them? <laughs> you know, it's, so you, you find out what it is, is, is stopping them from a cognitive thinking point of view that might be uh, an issue and then you challenge that. And then the very top level is the philosophical level and that's really interesting because this this comes out of uh, a therapy that I'm trained in called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, and I'm sure you've heard of people talk about Stoicism, um, and Stoicism's kind of getting a bit of popularity. But REBT is kind of like modern Stoicism because it's it's what Stoicism evolved into into like actual psychology, and. What you would do from that point of view is like, what's the worst case scenario and can you deal with that? And the worst case scenario is that you never snatch, you know, that 60 kilogram or that you injure yourself. And then you would ask yourself, do you want to be a person who never tries to do something because they know it's impossible? And do you want to, is this worth doing, even if it's impossible? Um, Or is this worth doing, even if you get injured? Uh, And yeah, it might be. And if if that's a a philosophical way of looking at it and breaking it down into, can you deal with the worst case scenario and still take an action? Um, I suppose a phrase that I quite like is, uh, and it probably came out of some cheesy Marvel movie, but uh, it could have well come out of something else a bit more poignant, is the fights, uh, sometimes the fights worth fighting are the ones you know you lose. And it's kind of like, you know, there's important things to be done in life. And if it's important for you to get that snatch, if it's important for you to be healthy, if it's important for you to, to work on this and, and challenge yourself, then it's important for you to put your best effort into that attempt. Uh, so that will be a more philosophical level of change. But all four le- levels of change from situational, behavioral, cognitive to philosophical have different pros and cons in terms of how easy it is to use and then also similarly uh, how how lasting they are because a situational change might get you around the corner, but it's not going to be a lifetime strategy because it takes a high lot of resources. Whereas a philosophical change takes a real difficulty and force of effort and somebody like me to help you get to that position. Um, whereas uh, it doesn't take a lot of resources to maintain that sort of philosophical approach to, your training and performance sorry that's a bit of a long-winded answer but i think it's very uh, thorough
0: no it's a great answer i love it i've taken like almost a page and a half of notes that, on um, and i think it's great how you've been able to just break down so many different areas that we can look at when we're looking at you know setting a new pb or you know even going into a, a game rugby league or whatever it might be or the afl Obviously, over here you can use many of these different tools and tactics to be able to break that that mindset of um, potentially failing or potentially not feeling that you're good enough. And like you said, there is philosophical. It's like, am I okay with that? Am I okay with giving it everything and potentially failing and and still being able to go on with with my life and and um, still being a human being in this world? You know, I wanted to go back to behavioral. Um, you know, that that 90 seconds before you do a heavy lift? Because I think it could apply to a lot of people, even in the typical sort of gym goer, even if, if we're looking at the bodybuilding sort of realm as well, is that one to two minutes between between sets. What are you sort of thinking about? Would visualization of the lift be what you sort of recommend in there about thinking, okay, already potentially successfully accomplishing the lift?
1: You know, visualization is is really important, but it's part of uh it's more of one of the jigsaw pieces in that pre-performance routine. But what's most important is what do you currently do? Do you do you currently use visualization or do you currently get somebody to slap you in the face and put on A C D C? Um you you have a routine and as you get better, your routine will develop and evolve. So you have your way of doing things. So as a psych, I would ask you, you know, what is the thing that you do? What is it, what is it like when it works best? And that's where we start from. And then we would only add in something far away from a competition where it's of benefit. And we may add in uh, something like imagery or visualization. It may be an image that you use to uh, Enhance your arousal, or it may be an image that you use to reduce your arousal, or it could be an image of you performing the skill. But again, if you're somebody who can't use imagery, because five to six percent of the population don't use imagery, and apparently people who are really bad at imagery are really good artists. Um, I I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know where I picked that one up, but but. The idea being that they use, they're able to draw what they imagine, but not actually imagine it and see it clearly, like some people. So most people, if I say close your eyes and imagine uh, a football hitting the post, could imagine that. And some people will imagine the color of the post, the color of the ball, the speed, the angle. Some people might just sort of imagine like some sort of noise and thud of a football hitting the post. Uh, and we all have different skills with that that ability. So, controllability of imagery is important. Are you somebody that can control your imagery? You know, can you actually control yourself and and see? Oh yeah, that's me hitting the lift, and it works every time. Because if you imagine something that's negative, uh, a negative performance outcome before a lift, that may affect your lift badly. Now, that's not to say that negative imagery is a bad thing because if I am negatively imagining something, I can then prepare against that. So it's not a case of, oh, have nice, lovely, positive images. Psychology is about negative things and positive things and it's about using them both uh, depending on which is helpful at which time. So imagery is something that you can use. And I think, you know, when you're training, it's like, Imagine start imagining what good looks like and imagine yourself do that because um, that increases uh the the likelihood that you will perform that skill in that way. And I think where imagery has the best uh evidence is in skill acquisition and developing skill. Um I think I think for me though, you know, start with what they do already before you actually try and talk them into doing adding anything in. And the best way to think about this is performance, uh, top-end performance is not just a case of you're building all these things into your day and building all these things into your routine, uh, like adding bricks on top of a wall to build a nice high-performance wall. It's much more like a soup where you're throwing in a little bit of something, you taste it, you see what it is, and then you add something else in and you mix it up and you let it sit a while and see does it change flavor and then you taste it again before you add something else So again, that sounds like a really wishy-washy uh, thing. But anybody who's an SNC coach will have read John Kiley's work on periodization. And that's essentially what he talks about is individual test, retest, see what's working, respect that every program doesn't have the same effects on every person. And it's the same with psychology. Every approach doesn't have the same effects on every person. And that's for the skill of the practitioner. And I'm sure all your guys, your coaches, know that. Like they have to treat their athletes and clients a different way. Because some of them like things in a different way and other like other them other of them, others of them like it other ways, you know. So uh, yeah, I hope that answered the question.
0: No, absolutely, it does. So if we're looking at psychology, if we're looking to optimize performance in, in training to start with. Obviously, there's a lot of things to think about. There, there's the, the big four things. Is there a place where just a general, typical sort of gym goer or even athlete that may not, you know, have a a degree in psych can just start with? Where would they start?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I think part of part of me would say, find out what the least you can do uh the least amount of things you can do to achieve success um and that way if you do that you're actually going to leave room for adding uh things into experiment with um so you want to understand the least amount of psychology possible uh my problem is i understand too much psychology and think too much about it um and then can obsess about it you know and it's the same with coaches will get this they know too much next thing they're looking at conjugate method they're looking at west side method they're looking at starting strength or mad cow or crossfit and then they don't know what to do um so you, you only need a little bit so my little bits that i would say to people is what is it you're trying to achieve how will you know when you've achieved it and what are you doing that is uh working towards achieving it now this starts to sound a little bit like you know I'm, I'm coaching you or i'm doing you know basically you know i'm being a coach well that's all psychology is it's, it's the same for the mind it's like a coach for the mind but the more we can make psychology real the better we can make it so there's 10 key areas that are useful in developing uh athletes um so Those areas are known as the psychological characteristics for developing excellence. And essentially the the characteristics are goal setting. um, They are commitment, focus and distraction control, realistic performance evaluations, role clarity, self-awareness, self-regulating, planning and self-organizing, quality practice, imagery, and seeking and using social support. So those are terms that are all uh, related to psychology, um, and they the enhance athlete's performance. But the thing that you need to do as a person is find out what those terms mean to you. So if I say to you, what is, uh, and, and picking which one of those you wanna focus on to improve your performance, so if I say to you what is seeking and using social support, uh, because you've picked that as something you think you need to improve upon, I'm going to ask you what your definition of it is. And if if a person says, "Oh, it's not being lonely at the weekend and getting stressed out," well, that's not a good definition because you can only you can only achieve failure by having a definition, which means it's a, a deficit thing. So that's like saying, "Don't think of a pink elephant," then you think of a pink elephant. So let's define that positively in a way that can be achieved. Social support is you getting out at the weekend and and having a coffee with your friends. So that's now something that we can visually see. That's now something that we can uh, say is something that can be achieved. And it's something also, if you were in a team setting, could be promoted to other people. You know, if you run a gym, did everyone get some social interaction this weekend? You know, or when's the last time you had some social interaction so it's definable because it's observable, not deficit-based and promotable. And what we've done is taken a psychological characteristic like social support and turned that into a physical thing, a psycho-behavioral thing. So that process, I would do that with uh, all of those things. And uh, then I would turn that into – sorry, I've just got somebody uh, knocking at the door. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> if it's so the I, pizza I go through
0: account. that. Oh, sorry.
1: Mate, no, it's actually the local pub delivering beer. I'm much more classy than getting pizza ordered in. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, (laughs) Jethro, if you're listening to this. (laughs) Right, so uh, anyway, my mate Jethro, who's actually just come back from Australia, has been delivering beer to me. That's brilliant. So, uh, yeah, you want to define these as, um, as things that are definable, they are um, definable, um, observable, uh, sorry, they're, I made a mess of this, I lost my train of thought. They're defined because they're observable, not deficit-based and promotable. Um, the thing you're going to do is ask athletes what their definition of that is, not what your definition is because your definition might not be what they can achieve or might not be what they think is reasonable. So quality practice, you as a coach might turn around and think quality practice is doing all your sets and reps um, and completing the workload. Whereas for them, quality practice might be focusing on staying over in uh, the clean and jerk in the first pool. So you want to ask them what they think quality practice is and create a definition that they uh, can understand because they're going to be motivated to work towards their definitions of what quality practice looks like, um, not your understanding as a coach. So that's where like, a coach needs to put their ego back in the box and really let the athlete take control of their psychology and facilitate the athlete understanding uh, those terms. So like, as we know, quality practice in psychology terms, you know, we could be talking about skill execution, we could be talking about rate of force development, we could be talking about reproducibility of technique. We could be talking about learning and self-awareness of execution of the skill. So many different ways a psychologist could look at that. But I need to understand why that athlete has turned around and said, I need to improve the quality of my practice because currently I'm not doing this and that needs to change. Or in terms of goal setting, you know, your definition of goal setting and I know we've all heard smart goals and they've been done to death. Um but like your definition of what goal setting might be it might be different from mine, but it's important for us to it's important for you to have a goal to know what you're going to going to work towards. And it's important for you as an athlete to set that. But similarly what I would say is a daily practice is taking something that is a a career goal and turning that into a daily goal. So what do you want to achieve in in 30 years of this? And how how does that look on a Tuesday at four pm? Um, so that's my process of of like goal setting is bringing it from that big down into the small. But again, it's up to the athlete to select what is the goal because their goal might not be go to the Olympics. It might be enjoy it and have friends and get jacked and tanned. You know, so that's you need to understand their motivation of what their goal is and why that's important and they've selected it. Um, so, yeah, does does that answer the question? Yeah,
0: absolutely. It does. It does, and then some, to be honest. Um, I think what I loved about that, what you hit, was as coaches looking at the athlete and starting where they are rather than taking them and going, okay, I'm going to use all these processes that I think you should be doing, whereas we've got to be super individual with our athletes and our clients and go, okay, well, what's going to work for you? What, what are you already doing? Let's let me, Let's make that 5% better and let's see what happens. And if it works, great. We don't need to do all of this other work because you don't know anything that I'm going to give you. And we, we could spend six months trying to instill these new behavioral patterns, whereas we could just use what you've already got, tweak it a little bit, and we could just find the magic key right
1: there. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing is like when we look at change in an athlete, you know, people, you you mentioned it there, you don't want to do all of this stuff that's going to take six months. You want to think of it like a snowflake. You are the coach and you're just coming in and you're dropping a little snowflake on what could be an avalanche of change and performance improvement. And actually what your job is as a coach is to do is go in and throw a snowflake, and wait and see how it lands, see what happens, and then throw another one in. And that's how you think about your inputs to the athletes. Some people... Like, you know, there's been cases where coaches chronically over-input into athletes and are continually telling them so many different things. The athlete doesn't know what's important. You know, the best coach can say nothing, give you a look, and then you'll be spurred into your own way of of thinking and understanding your performance. And then they'll come over and say, what are you thinking? Let me know. And they say, well, try it and see what happens. I mean, that's 90% of great coaching. Um, The... The idea that you know a coach needs to know everything and tell everything is, is completely outdated and, and, and wrong, I would say. Um, and again, a lot of you see a lot of coaches over-coaching because it's their ego. This person's paying me whatever they are and are. Uh, therefore, I must do a lot of things. So they shout lots of things and think that's coaching. It's, it's not. Um, coaching is saying the right thing at the right time um, to be optimal. It's not saying everything.
0: Yeah, and I think the rule of like less is more can really be sort of applied here because athletes and, and clients don't necessarily have all the the education that you do. They don't know the process that you're going through to instill this particular answer that you want out of them. But if you just, you know, give, give a cue like you said before is um, drive your feet through the floor on, on a deadlift, something like that. Cool. I can do that. Like I can apply that, whereas we know that they're going to be able to get much more hamstring, glute, quad recruitment out of a deadlift. We know that, but they don't need to know that necessarily. They may not exactly. give a shit about it. They're like, I just want to lift the bar. I want to lift more weight on the bar. Tell me how to do that. Okay, great. Yeah. Imagine you're pushing through the floor or pushing the world
1: away. Yeah. I mean, look at Starbucks, right? I don't particularly like Starbucks. Um, but one of their things is that they're – Their staff are trained to smile at the customers and their staff are told that you are a successful employee if the customer smiles back at you throughout the entire transaction. Like, it's so simple. you, You don't even have to know what you're doing. Like You could be behind the desk and you could be dancing and singing and farting at them. And as soon as they stop smiling, that's your feedback. You're not doing a good job. As a coach, your feedback is going to be like, are those people happy? Are they still coming back through the door every day and are they putting work in? Because if they're not, that's not because of, you know, whatever other reason. It's because of your services and up to scratch.
0: So with psychology, obviously we're using a lot of those methods to optimize performance. How do we do that in everyday life? How do we take those skills and apply them to everyday life so we can be better in? business in career in our relationships
1: yeah so the same skills that i mentioned the team same 10 pcds translate straight into um straight into daily life so the, the two big things that are predictive of performance and environments are can you cope actively and also can you prepare if you're prepared and you can cope you're going to do pretty well so if you think of those uh, topics that I mentioned, the the PCDS, um, you've got like commitment. What is it in your life that you're committed to? Um, what do you need to be committed to? Maybe at a certain time in your life you need to be committed to, you know, your career. At another time in your life you need to be committed to your health, um, you know. But if you commit to everything, you're actually, you know, you're not committed to anything. Um, so you need to be able to prioritize as part of that commitment. Uh, I think also the other thing about commitment is, like, commitment is not motivation. I always say, and you know, it's a common thing, and I'm sure you've heard it already, is uh, people talk about motivation. And I say nobody's motivated to feel a child with a dirty nappy that is crying in the middle of the night. But parents are committed to doing that, and that's why it gets done. So, you know, draw a line through the things that you're needed motivation to do and underline the things that you're committed to do in your life. And that will give you a bit of a focus and a priority as to how you need to spend your time. Um, the, the other thing is when you do that, you'll find you've got greater motivation because you realize there's bigger why behind the things you're committed to um, focus and distraction control. Like what are the things that are like your time thieves? What are taking things out of your life in your work? um is it is it shit friends uh or is it shit follows on twitter you know you need to remove things that are a distraction control but you also need to get good at maintaining your focus and regaining that uh within uh whatever thing you're applying yourself at whether it be work or like for example how many people have probably listened to this and multi multitasking or God forbid, how many people are listening to this and also at the same time trying to have a conversation with their their partner or spouse? You know, the there's there's times when we like don't focus on the thing that's important, um, and that's that's it's important to be able to develop that skill and know what and when you should be focusing on things. The next one I mentioned was realistic performance evaluations, and that's all about getting like good. Quality feedback and understanding where you're messing up in life, and like nobody, nobody makes improvements in in their situation, um, without getting an evaluate uh, an evaluated look at their performance and getting some feedback. So is that your friends or is that you being smart about how the world's reacting to you from how you're behaving in the world? Um, you need to find a way of creating uh, a performance evaluation, and like. I'm lucky enough, I get to speak with like really cool people. And I know you've had Arthur Lynch uh, and David Nolan on your show. Um, and I They are they're people who I would go and ask questions to. And similarly, they would ask questions to me about things. Um, And I think it's like, that's, that's a key aspect is like, do you have people who are on the same journey as you or on a similar journey that you can get some interest and feedback from or interest and thoughts from? And those thoughts better be damn different from yours. Because if they're the same thoughts, well, you're not learning anything. You know, this is why we need different opinions is because if we've got different opinions, then learning can happen. But if everyone has the same opinion, I mean, that's like 1944 Germany. You know, everybody's good stepping around the place with the same opinion. We need different opinions in the world if we're going to have productive growth and development of, of society as as a group but also you as an individual. So role clarity or self-awareness. I think that that again is another thing that in everyday life uh, is important that you know what it is you're doing. So like I know I've done jobs where I, I, I had jobs like everyone else did when they were younger that they hated, uh, working in call centers and things like that just to get by. And I think like in sit- situations like that where things are tough, why remind yourself of why it is you're doing the job and be aware of how you're coming across because even though you know and everybody has to do things they don't like to get ahead um why is it uh what is important about that scenario what is your role your role is to maintain uh your your dignity and the respect that other people have for you by how you conduct yourself in that environment even though that might be a horrifically tough environment I'm sure there's many more horrifically tough environments than soul sucking call centers that people have had to work in. But it's like, what does that job get you? It Gets you a couple of pounds and keeps you afloat for a while. That's fine, but be aware of what the role is and how you you know be self aware of how you're performing that role within those difficult situations in life. The same could be said about you know, for instance, uh, if you're in a relationship with a person. Uh, again, how does how does your role play out? Is it a case that you come home and sit on the sofa and wait for your dinner? Or are you actually thinking, right, it's been a while since we've actually done something and acted like humans. We're in this pattern. Become self-aware of your patterns that exist. Um, self-regulation is the next one on that list. And again, why is that important for daily life? Is because if you're going to sit there and be overly reactive to every situation, Uh, that challenges you then you're gonna you're gonna find it difficult because people will start going oh i'll I'll step off a bit there because that person can't take feedback or that person can't take challenge we all know somebody who creates drama out of things but you need to be able to regulate yourself so that you can still conduct yourself and maintain relationships with people because we know social support is good but also maintain performance of whatever it is you're trying to do whether it's have a beer with your friends or whether it's um, uh, do your do your day job, you know, like what is when do you need to be self regulated? When are you dysregulated uh, emotionally or logically from what it is you're trying to do? And when is it having a, a negative impact in your life? Um, the other things planning and self organization like goal setting, those don't need to be talked about. That should be pretty obvious. Uh, quality practice again just another form of you know practice could be looked at as the daily aspect of performance evaluations um, imagery does that have a uh, benefit in the daily life actually I would say yeah like you know for me I do a lot of talks and I, I operate in a lot of difficult scenarios at times and it's important for me to run through in my head what am I walking into like a, a great saying is, if you're walking in the shitstorm, make sure you know what way the wind's blowing. So, like, if you're thinking in advance, uh, what can go wrong here, then you're prepared for it. And imagery is a really good thing for that. But the other thing is that we know from the research is like people who prepare for things going wrong adapt and cope quicker than those who haven't. I mean, there's research done in this with police and uh, firearms training, which really is really interesting, where They got uh, the police to use imagery to imagine getting shot uh, and then trying to shoot the target. And then they put them in that exact scenario where they were getting shot. Obviously, it was with replica firearms with paintballs. And they found out that the group that did the imagery where they got shot performed better than the group that did the imagery that uh, imaged them just hitting the target or the assailant. And similarly did better than the group that did no imagery preparation. Uh so like that to me again is a way you could use imagery and think of that as actively preparing. And then seeking and using social support, like loneliness and isolation is, is something that'll probably kill you if you take it to the extreme. And I, I can't say enough about how social support and human connection is really beneficial for your just your health, you know. But also at the same time, like, can you, can you actually build a network where opportunities will come to you? Uh, a saying that I've heard before is your network is your net worth. And if you think about that, like, the more people you know and the more you interact with people, the more interesting things happen in your life. Um, so it's important. And there's even research which says that introverted people are actually happier when they pretend to be more extroverted um, and interact more socially. So like social support is really useful, but there's a great guy called uh, Robert Sapolsky. Again, his research on cortisol and stress in uh, animals and specifically baboons has shown that isolation and poor social connections will essentially mean you're going to have a lot shorter life and a lower quality of life. So get out there get talking and get listening because that's how you end up building a social network As being a good listener and a good talker. So those things are all applicable to life.
0: I couldn't agree more. Why Zebras Don't Get ulcers is still one of my favorite books. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Robert Sapolsky has done some great talks on YouTube. Uh, Like if you've got nothing to do during lockdown, I'd suggest go and watch them
0: all. (laughs) Definitely a good way to spend your time. Is there any... um, any routines, habits, and stuff that you have that you instill in your own daily life to optimize performance, whether that's in business or, or
1: in training. So, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit this this question with a hammer, right? Because I'm aware that there's a kind of a a big uh, a big idea that people need, you know, routines, and you know, what do you do in the morning? Morning determines your entire day. And I don't know I don't know how I feel about that, because I I don't have any routines. I'm I'm actually a bit of a a weirdo because I have you know numerous different contracts with you know two different organizations and two different branches of one organization, plus then a number of different things. So all my work in life is actually quite reactive and dynamic so I need to be on my feet thinking all the time and and changes so you know one day there'll be a big deadline and it'll be completely different so here's how I think about it people say you need balance Well, what is balance? balance is not having 50 of one and 50 of the other or half and half balance is a dynamic process it's the tightrope walker going along the tightrope going wibble wobble wibble wobble and not knowing which way is going to fo- fall, and and adjusting. So, like for me, like my routine is trying to find balance because I'm aware of how I feel and how I am, and I know when I am uh, getting destroyed will work, and I, and I have to say, right, actually, whoa, there's I need to build in some quality downtime here. Um, so, for me, it's like I think of it as a it's what you are there's ways of identifying when you are unbalanced and whether it's too much play or too much uh, work and thinking about it from that point of view. Or if you're an athlete, it'd be too much training and not enough recovery. And How do you use your balance shift throughout the week and throughout the day and also throughout the months and the years? How does your balance shift? So that's how I would urge people to think about it. I don't think I've got any specific routines other than how I treat people. So I always ask people for their thoughts um, whenever I give them an idea or I, I, I bring something to the table. I want their thoughts on it. So you'll always, if people who know me will, will say, well, no, I'll say, what are your thoughts on that? Because I genuinely want them because that's one of the ways that I get decent feedback. But then the other thing is like, I always ask for feedback uh, when I do things, whether it's a presentation or or other things. Uh, because I want to know how good I am because that's the only way I'm going to get better. And an interesting thing that occurred to me once was I asked somebody, I delivered this amazing uh, workshop and I asked somebody like, how was that? And they said, oh, it was about a seven out of 10. I was like, fuck you, that was not a seven out of 10. <laughs> it was a 10 out of 10. It was the best workshop I've ever done. Uh, I didn't say it out loud, but I was so annoyed and it made me realize that actually me asking uh. how was that out of 10 isn't good feedback but me asking like what can i do to improve what could be better and what should i do again the next time those are questions because they give me actual things i can do next time that are going to enhance my performance so in terms of routines how i interact with people is my routine i don't have like a daily morning routine other than drink an absolute fuck load of coffee (laughs) God,
0: God's liquor right there is coffee. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I, if um, there's any uh, health indications with coffee, I'm definitely going to get them.
0: Well, I'd like, I've like i asked this question actually to numerous health and fitness professionals um, and PhDs in their field and all that sort of stuff, saying what are the long-term negative uh, consequences of drinking a ton of coffee? Because I love coffee too. And I'm like, I wonder if anyone's done a study, you know, 20-year-long study to see what the optimal amount is for so you, you know? Yourself, up have been let
1: like, alive. Do you know what? Um, I like. I seriously hope there aren't any contraindications to lots of coffee drinking, but because I will get them, I'm, I'm sure, certain of it. But something I didn't say actually in the uh, in the question you asked previously about the the routines is I routinely try and destroy and break every opinion and thought that I have. Or other people have, so that would be the other thing because there's so much bullshit and rubbish in psychology and in the fitness industry and and coaching. So like I routinely try and find a way to break something and prove it wrong. And this is it's a bit of an obsession of mine, but like it's Karl Popper's principle of falsi- falsifiability, which is you know what somebody pointed out to me what I was doing because I'm known as quite a critical person. And that has downsides because I can then come across as a bit harsh or a bit uh, dismissive. But it's just because I want the truth or as, as close to I can get it. So what I would say is if you can't find a context where something is wrong, you're not thinking hard enough. Um, so always try and break the information and knowledge that you're given um, because it just it's a good practice and it'll help you get closer to the truth. And that's something that I would routinely do. Um, so yeah, that's an important thing for people to think.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think, and I think it is, as you said, they, it might come with some downsides, but I also think it's it's necessary because otherwise, how are we going to learn? How are we going to grow? How are we going to adapt? How are we going to innovate? How are we going to move forward if we don't break what we think this this norm is this normality? We oftentimes, I think, look at something and go, oh yeah. I like this person, whether it's a celebrity or otherwise, so I'm gonna agree with their opinion. It's like, well, have you questioned yeah. that? Like have you actually a really good thing to think, okay, maybe they're actually wrong or maybe there's a better way of doing this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's necessary to be be a critical thinker. Otherwise you're you're never gonna have a thought for yourself. You know, you're never gonna develop your own way of doing things. Um and like really good questions like that is like when is this wrong or or like like i was saying earlier um you know what well, oh i've just i've just lost my train of thought there okay yeah so like questions are important develop a set of questions that you can ask yourself and ask people who are giving you information um So like the the three questions I generally use is, what is this better than? Uh, Where's the evidence for this? And what is the cost of this? So what is the downside? So like no matter what action it is, look, buying a bunch of roses for your girlfriend has a downside. And the reason is because one, they cost money. Two, she might expect them again. And and three, like she might ask you, why are you buying roses? You know, so you need to know what the downsides are. Um, of of these actions, because that seems like everybody says, "Oh, that's a lovely, great thing to do," but there's downsides to every single action. I think like the people who I look up to, um, who are great thinkers, are people who think in paradoxes, and they identify that you know if you go this way, then you have this contraindication of that. So, for example, if I give you a coaching cue, then you don't develop the skill to learn to be self-coached. And what do I want from an athlete? Do I want a self-coached athlete or do I want an athlete I coach? And what am I trying to develop? Because if I develop a self-coached athlete, then I make myself redundant. But if I develop somebody who is uh, an athlete who relies on me for the coaching cues, then that makes uh, that means that that athlete can't learn by themselves, and I may be selling them short. So like that's the paradox. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. And that's why we need people to think really deeply about how they take actions within the world and how they think about these, like, psychology and just everything else they do.
0: Obviously, psychology is this huge sort of realm of thinking. What are two to three of the biggest lessons that you've learned yourself from psychology?
1: So the biggest lesson I've learned is don't give people advice Unless they ask for it um, and that would be uh from come from uh therapy that I'm training called motivational interviewing um and something that i tr- I've actually trained up uh a whole lot of uh physiologists and s and c coaches within the the institute that I work in in the u k um, the reason being that I say that is because maintaining and growing somebody's motivation for an action is very difficult, and if you can get somebody who's motivated, that's a makes things a lot easier. And we have this thing called psychological reactance, which is if I tell you to do something, the only way you can possibly express that you're a free human being that is not under my control is to do the opposite. Now people who think oh it means reverse psychology kind of yeah that's that's probably the pop term for it but let's think about it whenever you've gone for a curry right you go down the the, the local curry house the the waiter comes out and puts i assume they do this in, in australia as well uh they put out the the big hot uh metal thing that they set the dishes on yeah what does the waiter say What does the waiter say, be when he sets it out?
0: Really good point. I've not literally been for a curry in 10 years since I left the UK. <laughs> so. really?
1: yeah. Okay. Well, then, for those people, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe curry is not a big thing in Australia, but what happens when you go down to a curry house is the the waiter comes out and uh, sets sets out a big hot dish, uh, a big hot metal thing to set all the plates on, and the waiter will say, don't touch that. And what does everyone do? They touch it. You want to see how hot it is? Right? Yeah. You want to say, oh, is he right? How hot is it? You know, don't touch it. It's hot. Everybody touches it. So that's because if you, if you tell somebody not to do something, they react by doing it. So the way you want to maintain somebody's motivation is not to tell them what to do, but ask them what they think they should do and then ask them. And this is a, an absolute killer technique, is ask them P-O-T, pot, permission, opinions, thoughts. You go, do you mind if I uh, share you share my opinions on this? That's asking permission. Okay. And then you give them the thought, I think you're crap. You should quit the sport and uh, become an alcoholic. Uh, and then you go, what are your thoughts on that? And that's a great way to give somebody hard advice. Uh but it because it you've asked permission, therefore they want it and they're invested in it. It doesn't matter what your opinion is if it's completely ridiculous, uh, an offensive or whatever it is. Or a, a common one that I see that's been used on is uh, telling people they've got bad breath. It's a really good way to do that, um, and and that's something we're all like scared to do. Um, and it, there's actually research on this, believe it or not, in nurses about nurses being afraid to tell. Uh, colleagues have got bad breath, um, given they work in a setting where hygiene is important. So you ask permission, you tell the opinion, and then you uh, ask for their thoughts on that. And what that means is that you're not concerned about you getting them to do something. You're concerned about them understanding your viewpoint and then you understanding what they think of your viewpoint. And that has much more value and shows value in them and their understanding of the situation than it does in you being the authority person telling them what to do. So if you have to give somebody some harsh information, ask permission, give the opinion, and then ask for thoughts on the opinion, P-O-T, permission, opinions, thoughts. If anybody wants to check that out in the research, it's known as E-P-E in motivational interviewing, elicit, provide elicit. So yeah, that would be something I think is really important. Uh, those would be the two big things that, I would always uh, fall back on.
0: Are there any particular books that you've read recently that have had a p- profound effect on your life? Um, books, articles, things that you might have seen, movies, etc.
1: Um I'm currently reading Philosophy for Dummies, um, and I think I'm enjoying that. I suppose what I've realized is I'm very... Uh, very specialized within psychology, and I'm trying to understand the world from a philosophical, economic, uh, and political uh, viewpoints. Because apparently, those three subjects are taught in Oxford. Uh, that determine the number or, or determine the, in the course PPE. Uh, that determine uh, the who the po- politician or the poli- politician or not the politician, prime minister normally is. So. I think most of the prime ministers have gone through this course. So I'm sitting going like I've realized that it's very good for me to have skills as a technician of psychology, but to advance in the world uh, in a, as an entrepreneur or as somebody who interacts with, within organizations, I need to understand philosophy, economics, and politics um, because it's very easy for a technician uh, like, you know, a coach who understands S&C to be right about something in S&C, but to create that change within a gym or a gym culture or within uh, a sporting organization requires political know-how, requires economical understanding of the constraints that the organization is under, and also requires understanding the world from a philosophical way of, of how, whether or not that change is actually worth making. Um, so I think that's what I'm currently trying to educate myself on. Uh, I did try and read Sartre's uh, on being and nothingness, and then realised I'm not going to be that good at this, so I need to go back and, and start with the philosophy, philosophy for dummies book. So that's where I'm at. Um, if that answers that question,
0: it does. It does. And I obviously want to be super respectful of the the time that we've got, Hugh. Exactly. Yeah. Going for either. What are you What are you working on next? What's coming up next for the rest of 2020 for you?
1: Oh, ah, great. I actually wanted to mention this. Uh, you know, in terms of making uh, connections and having good conversations, I actually have spent uh, lockdown with a guy called Pete Olashoga, who is a lecturer in sports psychology and psychology from Sheffield Hallam University. And myself and him have actually interviewed uh, 10 of what we consider like to be, sorry, not more than 10, more than 10 actually, Uh, We've done 10 episodes interviewing people, sometimes with more than one guest, uh, on the topics and basics of psychology. Um, So if you want to check that out, the first uh, episode has been released on the 1st of September, and it's 80% Mental, all words, podcast. So EPM Podcast is the handle on Twitter. So uh, just Google uh, myself or uh, Pete, or 80% Mental Podcast, and you'll find us because we've realized there's a really poor effort of, you know, psychology podcasts out there, and we're just going to, like, re- reinvent it. And we've, we've planned it out as a series, so it's not just, like, an episode every week. We're actually looking at it as what is psychology, what are all the components, and then the series has a theme, and each series will have a different theme related to uh sport and performance psychology so it's uh that's something I'm really working uh, really looking forward to getting launched in September and we've had you know some of the best psychologists uh, in the world really with some amazing experiences on that show I'm under uh, embargo at the moment I'm not allowed to say who who it is but we've had people who've been performance directors within sports um, people who are ex-military people who are working. With uh, NFL and and uh, basketball in America, we've had uh, people who are working with gymnastics, American gymnastics, and ice hockey, um, and it's just going to be hopefully next level in terms of podcasts about psychology.
0: Well, that will be linked in the show notes below as well, so people can just jump straight into into that and find it. And lastly, where can people find you, check you out, and see what you're doing on your journey?
1: Um, yeah, so like I would say don't follow me. <laughs> so I would because I, I don't have time to put out uh much content, but if you do want to, there is uh my website with some articles on it uh and things like that um on podiumpsychology.com dot com or I'm on Twitter as Hugh J Gilmore uh or just uh podium psychology. Uh that that's me. Um there is actually uh, a link tree link on my Twitter, and that actually takes you to all of the big things, big interviews or uh, videos, etc., that I've done. So, if you just get access to my link tree link, that'll be the stuff where all the good, juicy stuff is. Uh, so, that'll be a one stop shop there for you.
0: And that again, ladies and gentlemen, will be linked in the show notes below. Hugh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you.
1: Cool. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege to get on uh, your podcast, Abby. I've been looking forward to it, and I know we've experienced some delays, but I'm really glad we we got to do this, and uh, all the best for the future. Thank you, mate. That's a wrap.